Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Spencer Tuma, Director of National Legislative Programs. Thanks for joining us this week. Today, we're continuing our uh, series of recordings with Missouri's congressional delegation, and we're really pleased this morning to have Congressman Blaine Lutkemeyer from Missouri's 3rd Congressional District joining us. Congressman, thanks for having us. Great to be with you, Spencer. Always a pleasure to uh, be with you and the good folks at Farm Bureau. Yeah, well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Certainly know your schedule is extremely busy. Uh, Congressman, we have a lot of Missouri Farm Bureau members from your district who are listeners on our podcast who listen every single week. Uh, But for those around the state or maybe even around the country who are listening uh, for the first time who may not know you, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came came to your career in Congress? Well, I come from a little town of St. Elizabeth, uh, south of Jeff City, Lake of the Ozarks, 336 people. And I think it's probably, uh, our research shows it's the smallest town of anybody uh, in Congress that's from. So um, we truly uh, represent uh, rural parts of our country. Um, you know, I uh, come from a small town, so I raised hogs and cattle growing up. And I was a, after college, I was a bank examiner for a couple of years and got into the banking insurance business with a state rep for six years, uh, worked as a director of division of tourism for a couple of years, and then uh, finished up my sixth term now in Congress. So um, I serve on the financial services committee and been uh, chairman of a couple of different subcommittees uh, with Republicans in the minority right now. I'm a ranking member on one subcommittee. So uh, involved in a lot of different other things within the, the caucus, uh, serve on the steering committee and a couple other uh, committees that um, the COVID, the select COVID committee that uh, the speaker put together, as well as uh, the president's commission on getting economy going again. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that introduction. I know uh, we at Farm Bureau have a chance to work with you very often, um, and we want to dive right into the issues this afternoon. Just kind of a note for our listeners, we are recording this um, this episode of the podcast in late August. Um, so we'll give everyone the caveat that I guess things are kind of subject to change. But um, Congressman, you know, you mentioned being on the special select committee on the coronavirus pandemic or the COVID pandemic. You know, tell us really, we've, we've been dealing with this thing for, you know, six to eight months, I guess, depending on who you ask. Certainly since March has really been ramped up. How has COVID-19 affected lawmaking? Um, and, and what are your, do you, I guess, do you have any grand insights to share on, on where we might be headed? Well, from the standpoint of lawmaking, uh, you know, we can't get together anymore. And, then, and Speaker Pelosi doesn't allow us to come to D.C. anymore. So for, you know, for, for actually to do our work. So we do everything virtually. You know, my day is uh, mostly sitting on the phone and, and doing things over the computer with Zoom calls and WebEx calls and things like that. And that's how we have our hearings now. They're all virtual. Even when we are in D.C., uh, you have the option of uh, being there virtually or going to the committee hearing in person. So um, when we vote on the floor, we vote in in groups. We don't vote all together. You have a group from like A to D and D to G and go on like that until you get everybody voted. It's very, very time consuming to go through this process, both on a virtual hearing as well as voting on the floor. You have to keep social distancing. and, you know, from the standpoint of uh, the citizens having access to our offices, uh, at this point, uh, anybody that comes to visit me, we have to meet them at the door, escort them up to my office. You know, we'll have our visit and we escort them back down to the door and out of the building. Wow. So it's it's uh, it's basically a very lockdown situation. And uh, the, the whole process is, is very inefficient. Um, 
And as a result, it, it takes a lot longer to get very little done. So, so, <laughs> so, but it's, so it, but that's the way it is. And uh, hopefully we'll get this thing resolved here in the next few months and get back to business as usual. Absolutely. Well, I think I can speak for all Missouri Farm Bureau members when I say we are, we're certainly ready. I, I even hesitate to call this the new normal because I, I certainly don't want this to be the new normal. Um, you know, something related to COVID and, and something you and I and, and Mr. Hurst have certainly talked about before is the importance of having stable and accessible internet access. And I think that's really been highlighted. Uh, it, it was certainly a problem before the pandemic, and I think it's probably even more of a problem or a more visible problem now. Um, obviously, rural broadband is very important to people across rural America. What do you see on the horizon? You know, is, is there an appetite in Washington to fix some of the rural <laughs> broadband issues we've been seeing? And, and what have you seen going on in your district? Is there anything that that really stands out to you or something we can try to make better? Well, that's a huge issue that's really been exacerbated and really uh, has spotlight shown on here as a result of of this uh, China virus here because, you know, both businesses and schools have done everything now by, you know, by by internet. Right. In the the areas in my district, especially in the rural parts, there's some of the schools couldn't do virtual uh, learning. They had to do something different. In fact, my local school, they would have a school bus drop the schoolwork off once a week, then turn around and go back the next week and pick it up and drop off the new schoolwork. Oh my and gosh. Kids were all working from home and they weren't doing it visually. Now, there are a number of schools in the district that, you know, if you live in a bigger city uh, or, you know, some of the, the larger towns in my district, you've got enough uh, broadband to be able to do that. But it is something that is, you know, it's, it, it's been shown that we got a, a huge weakness there, which we've all knew that's been exacerbated. And now we know we need to get this upgraded. In the CARES Act, there was $50 million that uh, was in there specifically for uh, high-speed internet across the state. And um, uh, there's going to be some more uh, money coming along if we do a CARES Act too. Uh, there's probably be some money as well in a new transportation bill if we ever get one put together. Uh, Sam Graves does a great job of um, managing those bills from the Republican side. Uh, he's the leading Republican on the Transportation Committee, and uh, broadband funding will come, a lot of it will come through there. So uh, we're, we're trying to make sure that uh, this is an issue that's in every bill uh, that's uh, it's going to help address needs, uh, you know, not just schools, but hospitals as well, uh, and businesses besides. So it's very, very important that we continue to wrap up um, the funding and the spending for our rural broadband. Absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned hospitals. That was another topic I wanted to to discuss because it kind of parlays right into rural broadband. If you think about expanding access to telehealth and other services, you know, probably one of the number one issues I hear from Farm Bureau members that's not directly related to agriculture is lack of access to affordable health care services and also affordable health insurance. Uh, certainly, that's a very controversial conversation. Uh, within Congress, but you know we've seen a lot of stress on the rural health care system related to the pandemic. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of rural health care, and I guess maybe the future of health care overall? It's certainly I hate to open a can of worms there. It's certainly a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a huge issue of future health care, but I think uh, rural health care. You know, we've seen in this pandemic the, the ability of the government to to waive and to relax and to provide more flexibility within the rules and regulations to allow telehealth and other uh, services like that to be available in the, in the rural parts of our country, as well as, uh, you know, especially like nursing homes and, 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 uh, and rural hospitals. This is a big deal because it allows their patients uh, to be able to stay home or stay closer to home. 
uh, or to stay in the facility and uh, be able to be taken care of. And I think, uh, again, this uh, broadband is a big part of this discussion. Uh, but I think if we don't continue to support uh, our rural hospitals and be able to fund them, um, I've got a couple bills that I'm working that I'm, I'm co-sponsor on uh, that um, that help or hopefully will be helpful to save some of our rural hospitals from closing as well as keep them funded um, because they're 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 one of our lifelines and uh, if we close that that lifeline uh, we really make uh, the life of our citizens and we endanger that in our rural setting so we got to keep those hospitals and clinics open uh, and continue to work to find ways to enable them to provide the healthcare services uh, through broadband service uh, to provide the connectivity to the medical professionals, uh, wherever they may be, to the citizens of the rural areas. It really is amazing what technology can do for industries such as healthcare. Uh, that's something that we, we are paying a lot of attention to, at least from a Farm Bureau perspective. I want to pivot just real quickly to trade. And I know you and I and, and Mr. Hurst and other members of our, our staff and our membership have, have had a lot of discussions about the administration and their trade strategies and, and certainly have seen a lot of progress on the trade front. Uh, what are your thoughts on the phase one deal with China, uh, maybe the USMCA, and then, and then what other opportunities do you see on the horizon for expanding access to international markets for agriculture? Well, that's a very long and lengthy discussion there that we can have on that, but let me try and be brief here. I think you know, just briefly, China needs us more than we need them. Um, and I think as a result of that, they will continue to try and be a partner with us, although they will try and dictate terms. That's the way they work. Mm -hmm. uh, the president's been very resourceful and very uh, determined in his negotiations with them to be willing to work with them to a point and say, no, you're trying to take advantage of us and we're not going to allow that to happen. So you're going to do this or else we will not do it at all. And so they have been brought to the table a number of times. Uh, you know, we, he's, the president's walked away from bad deals over and over with the Chinese. And then they turn around and realize that they're going to have to come back and, and meet his terms. And as a result, they call him uh, and our trade people and say, hey, we want to set back down. And as a result, then things get done. Mm -hmm. So his tough stance with China has worked in the past. He got the deal that we got. Uh, I think we're going to continue to get um, continue to, to have dealings with them. I know that uh, just recently, I think last week, they came out with, a, <clears throat> with some um, – announcements with regards to the purchase of uh, corn and beans over the next uh, several months here, uh, again, to China. So I think that's a very real possibility. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to evolve, although the president's a little reluctant to do much right now as a result of China's uh, being a bad actor with regards to this virus situation. Now, with regards to the rest of the trade around the world, uh, I think the USMCA uh, deal is, is uh, proving to be a good one at this point uh, on many fronts. Uh, there's some agricultural components to that that have been beneficial. I think uh, there's other deals around the world that the president's working on right now. I know he's got the United Kingdom that's very close to one. Uh, Kenya, of all folks, uh, is wanting to participate with the United States and become a partner with us, as well as uh, India. I think there, there could be a deal with uh, India here before the election, quite frankly. I know the European Union is, uh, is desperate to do a deal with us. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in Again, I can take a while to explain all the stuff story that's going on with these folks, but the, the bottom line is that they're still very, very interested in working with us. They understand uh, they're going to have to deal with uh, the president on his terms now, so they're trying to get these sweetheart deals where we're on the short end of it and they get the best of us. Um, so I, I think uh, the president's going to continue to push for good trade deals where they're fair and balanced, 
And I think that's the key. Uh, that means we win. That means they win. It's a win-win for everybody or else the deal doesn't get done. And I think agriculture is going to be a big winner in all this because every one of these countries always wants to leverage agriculture in the deal against other things. And the president says, well, that's fair or that's fine if you want to do that. But if you do that, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to we're going to raise tariffs on your automobiles about 25 percent he's found that the automobiles is the weak spot for these other trading partners and so when he says that so they come to the table they forget about trying to try to use the agriculture as leverage and give in on the agricultural products that we need to be able to to market to them and it wind up with a pretty good deal so uh, he's he's found in negotiating with us some tactical areas that he can be uh, resourceful with and get some things done the administration certainly has placed a big priority on expanding those markets, and that's something we in agriculture are really excited about. Uh, as you know, we produce some of the finest food, fuel, and fiber in the world, and uh, we have a lot of customers around the world that we'd really like to sell that product to. So I appreciate you kind of taking a strong stance on trade and continuing to push forward on that. Another thing the administration's really prioritized is regulatory reform. You know, everything from rolling back the clean power, clean power pan, excuse me, um, as well as rolling back the waters of the United States rule. Um, what are your thoughts on regulatory reform overall? And I guess as a follow-up question to that is, what would you say is your biggest challenge in communicating the need for things like trade and regulatory reform and, and other important issues to our members, to your colleagues in Congress? Well, you know, the, the administration understands the importance of regulatory reform. I mean, they, uh, one of the, the liberal papers there in Washington said that the president and his administration has gotten rid of 22 rules for every one that he puts on the books. Mm -hmm. uh, the president's people say, I think it's seven or eight to one. So either way, any number you want to take, it's significant. They understand the importance of that. Now, it's not a real sexy subject, regulatory reform. Right. Uh, how, does that, how does that impact people? Most people don't see it. They don't realize the lack of you know, it's, it's kind of uh, it's confirming a negative, which uh, most people, whenever you, you know, if you trim a tree up, you don't see that the, you look at the tree and it's a pretty tree, but you don't realize that the other uh, limbs that you cleaned off of it uh, were the ones that made it look the other way. And if you look at it after it's trimmed, you don't realize what it actually been done to it. Same thing with mm -hmm. regulations. You don't realize how harmful they are until you get rid of them. Yeah. And so at that point, then you realize the importance of, what, of regulatory reform. And the president's done this across the board, all different agencies. I know that it's very difficult. Uh, with the deep state problem that we have, that he has it with his administration, he's going to be there for a long, long time yet, to get this all the way pushed down, this whole regulatory, new regulatory agenda pushed down all the way to the bottom of these other agencies. That being done, his cabinet positions and under, uh, undersecretaries or assistant secretaries to be able to push this agenda, this regulatory agenda down and make a difference. And I think uh, we've seen with this uh, with the, the China virus problem that we've got that um, by deregulating certain things, certain industries, certain uh, groups of, uh, of, of things that were out there, we've, we've been able to better manage uh, this whole situation. And so the president came out, uh, I think, in March or April and said, hey, look, we've seen that if we, we make these changes to the rules and regulations, uh, we were able to better address a lot of issues. If that's the case, why do we have these rules on the book to begin with? And he, he, he um, told all of his agencies, you go back and you go back through all your rules and regulations and see once again, if we need these rules, fine. If we don't, we're going to get rid of them all together or we're going to change them. So mm -hmm. I've got a couple bills to do that very thing. Uh, this is a discussion that we have on a regular basis with the administration and all of his people. This commission that I set on uh, to get the economy going again, this is one of the big topics. How do we push to get regulatory reform that's productive, that's helpful, uh, 
Uh, there has to be a few rules and regulations in place, but if you minimize those, it frees up the economy, it frees up our people to be able to do their job, which is to you know, protect themselves and their families and, and farm businesses and, and allow the entrepreneurs to go forward and create jobs and grow our economy. So uh, he gets it. He's a business guy. Um, and, and as a result, uh, we it's been exciting to watch him operate with regards to rules and regulations. We relax all that stuff. Absolutely. Congressman, the last topic before we wrap up that I want to touch on, I know is something really important to your district, and that is the flooding that we saw in 2019. Uh, certainly all across the state, we saw a significant amount of flooding, not only on the Missouri River, River but on the Mississippi River as well. Um, what are some steps you see that are being taken to maybe assist communities or stakeholders that live and work and farm along those waterways? And, and where do you see that going over the next couple of years? Well, we continue to work very closely with FEMA and the Corps uh, with regards to levee repair and some of the flood damage that was done over the last, well, all the floods, you know, as they occur. And we want to continue to do that. And, and we, we've had a good relationship with them and they've been very receptive. Our communities have done a good job of getting information to them to be able to qualify for funding and be able to start to uh, rebuild and, and, and repair some of these things. Um, one of the things that I've done is I, I got three different things in the last, I got six pieces in the last word of bill, but three of them deal directly with flood control with regards to the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, and the Osage River. Mm -hmm. On the Mississippi River, I've got introduced uh, H.R. 5288, which is to begin the process to put a study together to ask the Corps to put a plan in place or begin to put a plan in place that can be uh, be helpful with regards to controlling flood from St. Louis north on the Mississippi. South of, the, of St. Louis, there already is a plan in place, and it's been working for the last 65 to 75 years. We need one north of, of the Mississippi, north of St. Louis so that that area can be controlled as well, because right now uh, it's a sort of a, a slapstick way of going about the levee system that they've got in place, mm -hmm. and a lot of areas are getting a lot of water dumped on them, while other ones have got illegal uh, levees up. So we need to put uh, a plan in place that is fair to everybody. And I begin the pro I began the process with uh, a bill that, that we're working on. It's in the water bill. Got the same water. I want to try and do the same thing with uh, from St. Louis along the Missouri all the way back to the last dam. Uh, you know, I guess the last dam up in Nebraska, um, so that we can control the navigability of the Missouri and make mm -hmm. sure it's something that we can be able to utilize even more. And then I've done the same thing. Uh, there's some funding that is there. Uh, uh, as regard as regard to, to the relicensing of, uh, of Dagno Dam, Amherst putting in some money there for flood control and, and mitigation on uh, erosion south of the uh, on the on the, uh, the lower part of the Osage there. Then we're doing some studies on that to be able to find uh, how best to approach that. So it's a big deal. Uh, you know, I guess you know by half Missouri goes across the state. I've got uh, the Osage all the way from you know what part is inside the, uh, the Lake of the Ozarks as well as uh, below the dam. And then I've got about 150 miles of Mississippi. So water is a big deal to me, as you said. Uh, and we try to work on water issues all the time to make sure that we can mitigate some of this flooding and protect people and their property and our communities and still allow for the navigability of these streams and recreation uh, that was so important to our people. Well, we know you're certainly a tireless advocate for those water issues and, and have been throughout your tenure in Congress. You know, Congressman, we really appreciate you joining us to talk about the issues today. As is tradition, we do have, uh, we used to call this the quarantine question, and then we kind of came out of quarantine. So I guess we're calling it the Missouri Farm Bureau weekly question. I've, I'm open to suggestions on what the name of that should be. But so the question for this week is, 
Congressman, what was your first car? And given the opportunity, would you purchase that car again today? Well, the first car I drove was an old 65 Chevrolet Impala that my dad had. <laughs> and, I, and I beat around on that thing until I graduated from college. And then I bought a, a 1970 Chevelle. I worked. Oh, wow. I raised a lot of livestock, I raised a lot of livestock growing, growing up. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm never a farm bureau yet today. And, uh, uh, you know, was able to save enough money to buy a new car and get ready to go off college. So when I first, my first car, I was actually my dad's and we were driving around in an old beat up 65. I actually drove it to the farm to uh, take care of the livestock when I was uh, a young guy in high school. So we worked out of the trunk of the car. There you go. <laughs> I bet that was certainly a sight to see. So um, it was an old green monster. <laughs> I love it. So, well, Congressman, you know, once again, before we wrap up, any final thoughts or comments from your perspective before we sign off? Well, I know that uh, Blake is uh, set to retire uh, shortly. I just want to congratulate him on a great job that uh, his, his tenure has over the years uh, has uh, he's done. And I think, uh, you know, he's going to be sorely missed. Uh, there's still a lot of good folks within the Farm Bureau, so hopefully we'll find a, a good person to step up and take his spot. But I I want to congratulate him on a great job and uh, all of his hard work uh, for the agricultural industry in the state of Missouri. And, um, you know, wish him well. Absolutely. Well, I'll certainly pass that along to him and, and we will miss him as well, but certainly wish him a great retirement. Congressman, appreciate you joining us. I know your schedule is extremely busy. Uh, good luck this fall as we return back to Washington. And uh, if you ever need anything from Missouri Farm Bureau, please do not hesitate to give us a call. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, James. Thank you. Take care. Take care.